Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett Booth, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our fourth episode of the Nauticast, entitled The House with the Red Door is in Bravos." An analysis of a Game of Thrones, Daenerys 1. Our very first Daenerys chapter, as well as our first journey across the Narrow Sea. And before we get started, I wanted to let everyone know about our spoiler policy. So our spoiler policy is that we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, all of the histories that have been published, interviews, and the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Although that won't be our focus. Anything and everything. Thank you to everyone who's been listening along to our podcasts. Again, the responses have been overwhelming. Of particular highlight, we wanted to highlight a few listeners and their great feedback and the ways that they've kind of touched us and uh, made us feel warm and happy and almost kind of nice inside. Uh, Del Wasawa waddle at waddle through westeros with a long series of tweets defending will as a pov character <laughs> an excellent point about how will functions as a window onto the small folk and how the small folk relate to westeros and i overall i think i still disagree in terms of how that relationship is expressed within that opening chapter but they made some excellent points about how Will works within that chapter, how Waymar Royce's kind of interplay with Will and Garrett works. So, again, once again, as we've said in the previous episodes, all feedback is welcome. All criticisms are welcome because it helps us think about the chapters and how we've talked about them. And it brings us open to new ideas. And every time we've talked about a chapter so far, we've, we've provoked interesting ideas that I have not have thought of within the fandom. So the more the merrier, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. And uh, Adele uh, wrote us, I, I'm going to say it was close to 40 uh, tweets in, in a series. Uh, it could have been an essay. So Adele, if you ever consider this, consider turning what you wrote to us in a tweet into some sort of essay, we'd be, we, we would love to read it. Amen. For sure. Um, yeah. Oh, by the way, the um, one of the... A couple comments we got is about your uh, Amen Brother thing. Have you have you have you read these yet? I've uh, apparently they're developing. Apparently they're developing a drinking game based around your quote unquote Amen Brother whenever uh, you're speaking on this podcast. So uh, if you don't want our listeners to be too drunk by the time they finish this podcast, well, actually, if you want them to be drunk by the by the time you finish this podcast. Keep on with the Amen Brothers. Well, first point, of course, I recommend our listeners be as drunk as possible. That only helps any podcast. <laughs> and second, it's only because Jeff is right so frequently and so eloquently that I simply have to comment oh. upon it. So it's it's more his problem than it is mine, is what I'm saying. It's not a problem for me at all. I just was saying that there's a great drinking game that is in development right now. And, you know, get in on it. Get in on the ground floor is what I'm telling our listeners right now. If you want to get in on some of the uh, the fun that you can have while listening to our podcast. Um, for, for me, I got a really cool message from a, a Redditor by the name of Shattered Jack, which is a great username on Reddit. He sent me a very detailed direct message talking about George R. R. Martin's larger message of massaging the narrative through the peculiar cultural lens of Westeros. Um, he was talking specifically about some of the points that I was making um, about whether... Um, 
some of the norms of, of Westeros were good or bad or, or, or whatnot. And his, his greater point was that we should be looking at some of these things through the world that George is, is presenting to us as opposed to the modern world. And I, I appreciate the perspective. I don't necessarily agree. I think that George wants us to take our own perspective into the modern world. George is a modern writer. He is writing in modernity. He is also not wanting us to go into this in a value neutral way, I believe. I would, I would, I would venture that at the very least. But I, I, but I do think it is important to understand the greater um, emphasis that George is putting on his own world and developing the world building and his own unique morality systems within the, the world of Westeros. So thank you, Shattered Jack, for the message. And I hope you keep listening. Amen. And we got a great message from uh, Oxford Splice at Oxford Splice at Twitter.com. Sent us a very sweet and kind email in which she praised us both and our our perspectives on. No, she praised you. Let's be real. She praised you specifically. I was trying to be subtle, Jack. I was trying to be. I was trying to be nice and sympathetic. But fine, Jeff. You want to you want to put me out? That's fine. Specifically, the the email was hi guys. Confession time. Even though I'm a regular and close in the door and love podcasts in general, I'm not a regular listener to other A Song of Ice and Fire podcasts. But I was intrigued by not a podcast and decided to give it a shot. I plan on subscribing. I really liked your thoughtful, nuanced discussion of the prologue and look forward to re. Reading along with you. Also, bonus points for bringing up Terry Pratchett and Lords and Ladies by Terry Pratchett. I think that's a really apt comparison. Anyhow, mm-hmm. your first ep was great when I look forward to more. See, Jeff, she praised us both. I know you want to put all the praise on me and bringing up Terry Pratchett, but your your your, your humbleness really, your humility really defeats your overall contributions, Jeff, and you need to be more proud of yourself. This is what I'm saying as your therapist slash co-host. <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm afraid that I've gotten several Twitter mentions saying that you and our interactions are making me soft, that people listen to me and my voice on this podcast and are like, this doesn't sound like the person that we hear on Twitter. And, and I want to say something to those people. Yes, yes. And Go I ahead. want you all to listen mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. The only reason why I am so nice on this podcast and I sound apparently like Mr. Rogers, which whatever is because I'm talking with Emmett. If I was talking with any of you, any of my awful, terrible, degenerate Twitter followers, it would not be so nice. And so I just want to let you guys know that, that what you're hearing right now is genuine. It's authentic, but it's only because it's within the context of speaking with my buddy Emmett on all of these matters in a song of ice and fire. So. It's true, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just the equivalent of an excellent dessert. I am creme brulee brought out in the middle of a tenacious family <laughs> Thanksgiving. You just you just put me on the table, and everything is okay. That's okay. I don't start fights with people who yes. like Renly more than Stannis. I'm not the person who has done that every single day on Twitter <laughs> since I got onto Twitter. No, I'm just an adorable – everyone can come around together around me and conclude that everything is well. This is true. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff, for saying so. You are so welcome, and that is a 100% true statement you said. You are my little cinnamon bun. Oh, so, darling. Uh, so just <laughs> so just thank you to um, everyone who is uh, not just the folks who um, we highlighted, but thank you to the many, many responses we received on Twitter, Reddit, and elsewhere. Uh, we love to... Um, 
We'd love to thank each and every one of you in person, but just know that uh, we do read and uh, we do enjoy all of the tweets, the Reddit messages, the Tumblr messages, and the emails. So thank you all very, very much. 100%. I completely agree. You are all valued and loved. I swear it. You absolutely are all valued and loved, even my degenerate, awful followers. (laughs) So... Before we jump into this chapter, Emmett, uh, last week, your Star Trek answer to uh, my question of the week, if you want to call it that, uh, was kind of a hit. I don't know if you've seen some of the responses, but it's been people have been talking about how they enjoy getting a sense of who you are and a little bit about not really as much as about me, but that's fine. Um, But they enjoy getting a sense of us outside of the Song of Ice and Fire uh, community. So to go completely against that, I have a new question to ask you. Go ahead, good sir. Song of Ice and Mm -hmm. Fire question. Okay, so in the past year, has there been a brand new theory or a thought? or an analysis, or even just a passing idea that struck you. And just so I can set the parameters of this discussion, it can have been written, said, or thought by you. And I wouldn't think that you would say that it was that you have like the idea of the year, because I think that you have a, a wonderful sense of humility about yourself. And it can have been written, said, thought, or I don't know, said by, by me as well. So who said, thought, or wrote it? What was the idea? And why did it strike you? I mean, Jeff, if you're going to put the two of us out of contention, what's even happening? Who is, who is even <laughs> the community you're talking about, good sir? But no, in all seriousness, we have a, a, a great friend on both Twitter and Reddit who goes by uh, Joe Magician on both Twitter and Reddit. But his real name is Matt. And um, he came up with an idea. I'm not remembering when exactly it was, but I know it was within the last year that he was talking about Brienne of Tarth. And how yeah. he was he was diving into an area of thought about the series I find very interesting, which is George R. R. Martin originally conceived after the third book, A Storm of Swords, which was published in the year 2000, that he was going to jump forward within the story five years. And all the characters within the story were going to be advanced five years, and he would tell that what had happened in the meantime with flashbacks and memories and just skip over certain bits. And that, that was his overall idea for how the fourth and fifth books in the series were going to go. And at some point – in the torturous, much-watched, you know, begin again and again <laughs> process of writing A Feast for Crows, he gave up this idea, and he, he eventually carried the series forward pretty much from the day A Storm of Swords ended, even earlier in some cases, as far as A Feast yep. of Crows and A Dance with Dragons go. But one of the areas I think is interesting to th- talk about within the fandom is what are some elements within those books that we can tell are parts of the stories he had in mind when the five-year gap was still canon. What was he planning to do with all these characters when he jumped forward five years? Where was he planning them to be? How was he planning them to have evolved in the meantime? You know, what what changed between him abandoning the five-year gap and him coming up with the canon we now know as a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons? And our friend Joe Magician, a.k.a. Matt, came up with this amazing theory uh, on Reddit about where Brienne of Tarth specifically was going to go. There was this supporting character named Pretty Maris in The Dance with Dragons. She is one of the Windblown, yes. the uh, associate sellsword company that Quentin Martell and his companions join in order to get to Slaver's Bay. And she is described as a very tall, blonde woman with uh, nothing going on in the chest area, someone who has been uh, tortured and attacked and kidnapped throughout her life with the sellsword companies of Esso, someone who 
is bitter and cynical and has very good reasons to be bitter and cynical. Someone who represents the overall kind of hardship and tragedy of living this life that Quentin Martell has entered. And what our friend Matt, a.k.a. Joe Magician, posited is that that's who Brienne was supposed to be over the over the five-year gap. After five <laughs> years in-universe had passed, that is the person in the original draft of A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, this tall, blonde-haired, intense, tough, cynical woman soldier was supposed to be. She was supposed to end up in Quentin's arc. She mentions at one point in her third A Feast for Crows chapters, Brienne, that she was going to go out to the across the narrow sea, across to Essos to search for Sansa. And it was going to be hard. She would have to gesture. No one would speak her language, but she was going to try to do it. And for me, I feel like that's a hint from George R. R. Martin as to where her arc was going to go in the original draft. And that our friend Matt has it exactly right, that she was supposed to be this character who had lost everything, had given him everything, and had just been lost within this sellsword life and was now you know, acting as this reflection of Quentin's own arc in terms of losing the dramatic fantasy story he was supposed to be a part of and getting lost in the cynical world and i just i love that idea i love that theory that you know this as we all know as anyone who's been a fan of this books for the past 17 or so years quite a bit has changed along the way <laughs> of his process a lot has changed a lot of time yeah. has been spent in terms of him changing his idea of where the story was supposed to go post a storm of swords and much as i love and i think you love as well good sir where he has actually ended up with this yes. series and think he has ultimately spent this much time coming up with the best possible way forward. There is a fascination in terms of where he was going to go, supposed to go, what his ideas initially were and how that has impacted mm -hmm. the story that exists within canon. And I ne I've never found a better example of that than our friend's theory of that pretty Maris, the character that exists in The Dance with Dragons, is George Martin's leftover of what he had idea for Brienne of Tarth. That as much as we might love what where she went in A Feast for Crows, and I really love her Feast for Crows chapter, that this is what he had in mind for her, and he wants to keep it around as just a little hint, a little, little touch in your mind of where this character was supposed to go. And that, you know, as much as we've been without new material aside from sample chapters for the past seven, six years, six, seven years, it's a testament to how much we enjoy ourselves and how well we get along as a fandom that we've been able to keep coming up with theories like this and ideas like this. And that's that's something in the last year that despite the lack of a new book or new material outside the show, that it shows how depthful the series is, how strong the writing is, that we can keep looking within it, keep staring within it and coming up with new ideas and interesting possibilities. And that for me is, is the prime example of that. Good, sir. Oh, yeah. For and absolutely, and and I, I was um, it, Matt had uh, was was kind of batting around some different ideas, and this is um, on Slack and a few other other locations, and this is something that I, I I think I really gravitate to, and I just said, dude, you have to effing write this, like this is this is something that needs to be written, and um, I, I I gotta say it's it's a fascinating great theory. And I love it, and I think it's really cool to imagine the world of A Song of Ice and Fire with the five-year gap in mind, although Emin and I would both agree that the five-year gap being abandoned was a good uh, change that Martin made to A Song of Ice and Fire. Oh, yeah, it would have been terrible on the whole, but it's still interesting. It's still interesting to consider, right? It's, it's interesting to wonder a what-if. You know, the funny thing is in the fandom, you have all of these what if, what if Ned 
had not gone south with with Robert, had refused Robert's offer of the hand of the king? Or what if Quentin had decided to go home instead of, well, I think probably only only uh, Emmett and I have really wondered about that because <laughs> Quentin's arc has not been as discussed as, as other ones are. But um, these these what if ideas are, are really uh, striking to me and they're interesting um, in trying to see some of the greater points that Martin's communicating. And at the same venture, though, I find myself really, really, really liking the way that Martin took Brienne in A Feast for Crows and seemingly as we progress forward into the Winds of Winter, how some of the some of her the fallout from our arc from A Feast for Crows is going to play out in winds. So I, I really um, I'm, I'm appreciative of Martin. If 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 he had decided originally that that Pretty Maris was going to be uh, Brienne of Tarth. I am glad that Martin took her arc the way that it did. I really love the knight errant um, type of story that is is uh, inherent in Brienne's story in A Feast for Crows. And I love so many different moments in Brienne's arc that I'm glad that Martin took it the way he did. Um, that being said, uh, to answer my own question about what was something that was said in the past year or so that I really, really gravitated towards, um, it was by uh, someone that... Um, we we and I, and I and I hate to name drop here, but uh, again, but uh, Adam Fellman, our our um, friend and our a um, inspiration to us, wrote a really neat little theory um, about eight months ago. I want to say at this point, um, again, we're recording at the end of January two thousand eighteen, um, and the theory was that uh, it was called the Winds of Winter Prologue Theory, the Silent Man, in which he postulated that. The prologue character from The Winds of Winter will be none other than Sir Ellen Payne, the king's headsman. And I really grooved to this theory. Um, I, I had been kind of ambivalent about the, the prologue. We knew from George George's uh, convention appearance at, um, at, at Comic-Con 2014 that Jane Westerling would be featured or would be seen in the Winds of Winter prologue. So we knew that it would probably take place in the Riverlands or in the Westerlands. At the same time, I wasn't super thrilled about some of the possibilities that were offered up. I had thought for a while that Sir Forley Prester, who was a knight in the service of the Lannisters, would be the prologue character. And I'd seen some other ones like Sybil Spicer as a prologue character. But uh, Adam's theory was that uh, Ilan Payne would be the the prologue character, and the reason why he thought he would be the prologue character was because he did a whole lot of stuff for the story. In one sense, he uh, offered us a venue into events at Robert's Rebellion before Robert's Rebellion, being a knight sworn to Time and Lannister. He was also his tongue was removed by Aerys the Second, which is something that would be um, something that I would imagine that he would probably think about daily, and so we would get his thoughts about that. And the other thing, too, is that he would be an excellent uh, vantage point for the proposed Brother Without Banners ambush, which may or may not be a seminal event in the Winds of Winter prologue, which we'll get to see what happens uh, when um, when you have a, a group of formerly ragtag rebels who are now uh, very popular and who are led by a vengeful zombie woman attack the Lannisters and attempt to free Edmure Tully and uh, Jane Westerling. And then finally, and I thought this was the most important point, the theory concludes with uh, Adam having this idea that the chapter would conclude not with a victorious party of Lannisters or not with a victorious Brotherhood Without Banners, but rather 
there would be a victorious wolves. That is that Nymeria and her wolf pack would come into the four and would attack both the Lannisters and the Brotherhood of the Banners and massacre everyone on, on scene. And the greater thematic point that Feldman stresses in this, the, the, in the conclusion to this theory was that, look, this, the prologue sets the themes for the story. It lets us know what we're supposed to focus on. So, in the Winds Winter prologue, having the Lannisters and the Brotherhood Without Banners be fighting and killing each other, and then having an inhuman supernatural force arrive and wipe everyone out is an excellent way to open up the Winds of Winter that shows us thematically that the Lannisters, the Starks, the Baratheons, the Tyrells, the Greyjoys, all of these forces are fighting and killing each other. But meanwhile, the threat of the the true threat, which is something we talked about in the prologue, that is the others are coming and they're coming to wipe out all life. It doesn't matter if you're wearing the Lion of Lannister or the Direwolf of Winterfell. The others are coming and they're coming to destroy all of humanity. And I have to imagine that is going to be a significant theme, if not storyline in the Winds of Winter of the others coming and their plans to wipe out all of humanity. Well said, brother. I completely agree. I love the idea of, I mean, like we said in the prologue, you have these political fights being set up as something that's perfectly legitimate and emotional and dramatic within the context of the story. But if you zoom out and go outside them, there's this metaphysical apocalypse that's coming for all of them. And I, I agree that would be a great way to set that up with, within Winds of Winter. You have, you know, you have within Feast for Crows the idea that the, the wounds left behind by the Red Wedding is, is are so dramatic and so deep and cutting within the people involved to them. And you have this this Tully Lannister fight set up where the Tullys are, mm-hmm. are, are horrified by what's been done to them. You see this in the last few Jamie chapters in the Feast for Crows. And I would love the idea of that that battle being shown to us and that there being a catharsis to that buildup. And then, like, you know, again, you zoom out and you see behind that that the wolves are coming for all of them. I think that would be a terrific way to set it up. And you have Ilan Payne as this... Yeah, he's a fascinating idea for a POV because he's he's speaking to you, but he can't yeah. literally speak. And he has, yeah. like you said, he has this important backstory that he can fill you in on. And that's something that Martin tends to love in the prologue POVs is he gives you their whole little story as a way to like oh, yeah. delve into the bigger themes. Like you have Crescent filling us in on the Baratheon brothers. You have Chet filling us in on the kind of relationship the small folk has to the night's watch varamir gives us the whole perspective of the wildlings as they build up to mance's campaign yeah i've, I've agreed with you forley prester makes sense in terms of a pov simply because he's jamie kind of mentions a couple interesting things about him he's in charge of jane's caravan he makes sense logistically but ellen payne i like that that you know that elevates there's there's ideas with his character and a, a certain irony to his perspective that makes sense with the prologue povs and makes him i think a fascinating character and he he's one of those characters we've been kept outside of the entire story someone like picel or you know jorah someone we've been we've we've known since the first book but we've been kept outside them the entire time and being brought inside his head just for a minute before he goes i think there could be a tremendous catharsis in that so i i noticed that theory as well oh, i'm yeah. a big fan of adam he's written terrific stuff about a dance with dragons as we've said that has dovetailed and encouraged our own thoughts about the book but that was something i thought going forward that it was a really great idea so 100 percent agreed yeah, so we'll have to see come the Winds of Winter, which which I've heard is coming out next week. Any day now, brother. Any day now. And any day, it's 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 going to be on its way, and we'll be able to figure out who is the prologue character. 
Um, with that being said, and I think that was another great and fun discussion. You know what time it is, everybody. It is the time <laughs> where Emmett gets to talk us through our first Daenerys chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. That is a Game of Thrones, Daenerys 1. Oh, I've been looking forward to this one, Jeff. I mean, that's a redundant statement because I've been looking forward to all of these chapters. <laughs> but Daenerys 1 is really special because this is the chapter where everything could have gone wrong. Coming back to this first book after... 20 years of this fandom, after 20 years of the series, after it's been adapted into a hugely successful television show, after its, its audience has swelled into the millions, its, its ideas and characters and moments have become part of pop culture and mocked and signified and everyone knows what the Red Wedding is. Before any of that, the moment that could have killed this series is when it expanded out from the first few chapters centered on Winterfell, centered on the North, centered on the Starks, the others, the Wildlings, and went, no, this this series is going to be about way more than that. We're going to go across the Narrow Sea. We're going to go across to a different continent, and we're going to check in with the family that so far all you have known is as the enemy that got swept aside. We're going to give you the other side to Robert's Rebellion. We're going to give you the perspective of characters who think everyone you've known so far is a murderous ass asshole who needs to be killed <laughs> we are going to give you the sense that this series is about flipping the coin about seeing the other side to things about taking a trope and reforming and refabricating and reforging it we are going to start the big picture of this series and if this didn't work my friend jeff we would not be talking about this series it would be so we easy for this not to work the amount of fantasy series i could tell you i've started reading and have failed as soon as they expand to the world-building aspect, to the big picture. I mean, they're, they're, the amount of books I put down and said, oh, they're just talking about the bigger picture, now I don't care. They've stopped investing me in the characters. They've stopped investing me in the world. This George Martin knew when he was writing this in the early to mid-90s that he had to get this exactly right. And he got it exactly right. I mean, this chapter mm -hmm. is ridiculously good. And this chapter so perfectly sets up one of the most important characters in the stories, one of the most important characters in terms of the overall themes in Endgame, and this everything Danny Daenerys Targaryen has done from this chapter forward, you can still see in this chapter. It's still so clear. This chapter is the equivalent. It's the opening moment in the Game of Thrones, opening credits of a Game of Thrones, in which the camera zooms out and it turns to the right, and that astrolabe camera thing that controls the whole credits zooms across the narrow sea, and we see what Danny's doing, and the chorus rises up. This is that exact moment. They took that moment in the opening credits of Game of Thrones from this, this bewildering moment when after those first three chapters, we go across the narrow sea. We meet House Targaryen. We meet our first human monster in Viserys Targaryen. We meet our first scheming chess master character in Illyrio Mepatis. And we meet Daenerys Targaryen. I know I said Bran was the overall protagonist of this series a couple chapters back in Bran 1. But if there was anyone who competes with him for that prize, it is Danny Targaryen. And this is the chapter we meet her, understand her, and get the sense of where she will be going for the rest of that book. And pulling off this remarkable gambit is in large part due to Danny herself as a character. I have problems with the supporting characters Danny ends up with in later books. I think she gets a much less interesting supporting cast than someone like Jon or Arya. 
her char- her overall arc starts starts and stops in certain ways as we will get into but she herself is a fascinating fully fleshed out formed character that begins in this chapter and how she relates to Illyrio how she relates to Viserys and just the mere fact that she is POV herself i mean if you look at the overall events of her storyline in this first book it's so easy to imagine Viserys being the POV right He's the heir to the throne. He's the one making the big decisions. He's the male. He's the older sibling. He's the one with the tragic backstory. You could so easily see this from Viserys' perspective. But the very fact that it's from Danny's lets you know whose story this really is. Very from the very beginning, even before Danny marries Khal Drogo, but similar to the Dothraki, tries out Miri Mazdor and ends up with dragons. The very fact that she is the point of view character. It's, it's a subtle, quiet revolution in a way, even before any facts in the story let you know that Viserys is very much not the main character here. The very fact that our eyes are Danny's lets you know who's really in charge here. And, and Martin subtly develops that throughout the chapter itself. And again, it's so easy to imagine this chapter destroying, derailing the whole series in terms of geography, ideology, you're jumping to different characters, but... What keeps it alive, what keeps the momentum going in your first time through this first book is that Danny is such a strong character. And you understand exactly what's motivating her and why and how she's different from Viserys and what she understands about Illyrio and the Dothraki. And it's it's just so good. I've been I mean there's so many chapters in this early suite I've been looking forward to discussing with you, my <laughs> friend Jeff. Yes. But man, Man, this might, this might be near the top in terms of sheer accomplishment and how wrong it could have gone. Yes. Yes, this is... Um, I, I think this chapter and the next one, which is Eddard 1, are the two that I am most... and have been most excited to to chat with you about because, like you said, this, this chapter is subtly revolutionary. And, you know, the thing is... And, and you said this perfectly, so I, I feel like I'm, I, I'm basically repeating the, the, the great points that you've made, but Martin could have gone way off, off, the, off the rails here. And one of the things he could have gone way off the rails here is in presenting a foreign and different culture that is utterly ridiculous. And, you know, the thing is, is that Martin could have, and he, you know, well, as We'll probably get into a little bit here. Martin does tend to otherize some cultures, especially the Dothraki, a little bit, um, the Giscari a bit, a bit, a little bit later on. Um, but here, you know, there's a um, there, there's all sorts of these and these quote unquote strange people, but they're not strange in the setting that they're in. You have Tyroshi with blue beards. You have Dothraki with braids that are uncut, and it doesn't feel like a like they're just in a freak show, you know, and and that's a really, and then that's a testament again, as we've said in all the chapters we've reviewed so far of Martin's ability to write. And, you know, one of the things that I've done since I, I did a reread a couple of years ago was that I read through a, a couple of Martin's other stories. And one of the stories that he wrote was this great book called Dying, called The Dying of the Light, uh, which is a fascinating book. And I think you all should read it. Um, on its own merits, it's it's terrific. All it's very very melancholy, and I think you'll you'll like it a lot. But one of the things he does there, and you see this early on, is that he describes a culture, and I won't spoil the book for you all because it is a great book. Again, 
um, that is very different from a culture that we would be used to. And he does so in a way that the people are believable. They are, even if they're not extremely sympathetic, they are, um, you empathize a bit with their struggles. You understand who the culture that they are. And what I love about this chapter, and I'm getting probably getting ahead of myself to my likes and dislikes of the chapter, but what I, one of the things I love about this chapter is how this is a very lived-in world. Martin introduces us to the Pintoshi people. He introduces us to characters like Illyrio, who is one of my favorite characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, not morally, of course, because he's an awful, terrible scumbag, but I love him the same way that I love Vars in the story. Um, he's a great character. He's a great foil for the characters here. Uh, I, I love the character of Viserys as well for similar reasons, is that he's a great foil for Daenerys Targaryen. And uh, Viserys is a... Uh, man, I could, I could talk a while about Viserys, but I'll try to keep my comments short. Uh, Viserys is a, is a bully. He is... He is um, He's cruel. He is manipulative. He is mean. He is everything that you look at and you're like, this guy is a piece of shit as a, as a human being and I don't like him. But at the same time, you somewhat sympathize with him because you have Daenerys describing this elaborate and fantastic backstory on Daenerys and Viserys. And you understand why Viserys is so cruel and angry and mean. Now, of course, Martin, being a good writer, doesn't justify Viserys's cruelty to Daenerys in any way. That's not what he's doing, and that's not something that I want to say that Viserys is justified in being this asshole to Daenerys. But at the same time, he has reasons to be the way that he is. They might not be good reasons, um, but there is a little bit of... Uh, I don't know how would do how would I say it... Um, there's a little bit of pathos even in Viserys' backstory, which helps flesh him out as a character, even in this chapter. And we'll be seeing a whole lot more of Viserys as well. Um, but, you know, Viserys is not the point of view character. Illyrio isn't either. None of these other side characters are. Daenerys is the point of view character. And here, I think, like Emmett said, George has a great idea for where he's going to be taking Daenerys Targaryen. We've talked, we talked last episode about George's 1993 letter uh, to his agent in which he describes the, um, where he plans to take all of these character arcs in the story. And the funny thing is, is that he changes so, so much about so many of these point of view characters in the story. Interestingly enough, one storyline with a whole lot of kind of tweaking and contouring has remained somewhat similar to the letter. And that's the story of Daenerys Targaryen. And I think that's a testament to George having a very clear, concise, and smart idea of what he was going to do with Daenerys as a character. And this chapter helps us to see the outline of it. Daenerys is supposed to marry Khal Drogo. It is all about her preparation in being presented to Khal Drogo. You actually Daenerys before the chapter closes with Daenerys smiling at Khal Drogo. But, you know, it's it's all about the background and the backstory for Danny, and we get this fabulous taste of what's to come. And I this is again, I, I'm I'm gonna I keep gushing about this chapter, but I adore this chapter. It's one of my favorites. It probably would fall in my top ten of all all time favorite Song of Ice and Fire chapters. And I I, I just uh 
I love it. I, 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 I'm, I'm gushing. I'm still gushing. I don't care. I love this chapter. For good reason, brother. <laughs> it's, it's, it's that good. I mean, you have, you have Viserys presenting this narrative, and you can so clearly sense in the way Danny describes her brother that this is something that's been flitting in front of his eyes for years. Ever yeah. since he fled Dragonstone, he's been telling himself, we're going to go back, sister. We're going to get all. We're going to get King's Landing and Dragonstone and the jewels and the, and the gems and the clothes and the royalty. It's going to be all there. And that has to happen because if that doesn't happen, sister – I have wasted my entire life, and nothing oh, yeah. nothing I have done means anything. And Danny is this quiet voice of doubt because she wasn't she doesn't remember Westeros, and that's such a crucial point of her character. That unlike Viserys, she is no nostalgia for this place. She was born on Dragonstone, but she doesn't remember it. All she remembers, as we will get into later, is the red door in Bravos. <laughs> She remembers their life on the run. She remembers the free city. She remembers Essos. That's what she knows. Westeros is a story to her as much as knights and kings and fancy princes are a story to Sansa. She doesn't know or believe in any of this stuff, and that's supposed to make us look with look askance at Viserys' overall dream of getting the Targaryen regime back because his sister has already moved on in a sense. This is already her home. She, she is already – given up that dream because it was never her dream it's a dream that belongs to Viserys and as we've been saying the fact that our POV is not Viserys the person with that dream but Daenerys the per the next generation so to speak who has largely moved on from that vision who understands that vision only in terms of her own growth as a person and not in terms mm -hmm. of something she is owed you know that that makes a huge difference in how we view the Targaryens I mean Right away, you see in this chapter, I mean, this chapter, I love the gender politics of this chapter because it opens with Daenerys being presented with a dress. And this is something she's just supposed to wear for the party later that night. And you could see so many fantasy series and so many characters in fantasy series and so many readers of fantasy series not caring about this moment. The moment a female character is presented with a dress. The clothes she will wear upon this night. That's something that's so easily brushed over, both in genre and real life. But Martin starts with it because he understands, as with the dress that Sansa will receive in A Storm of Swords, that this is important. That this is part yeah. of how Daenerys Targaryen interacts with the world around her. This is a signal that she understands, even though Viserys doesn't. There's a Immediately, in the in the start of the chapter, Viserys shows her the dress, and Daenerys' first dialogue in the series is, is it really mine? <laughs> Immediately, she's questioning the, the, the systems around her, the money, the power, the wealth, the jewels, the glory. Does this belong to me? If not, right. who does it belong to? Yeah. And if it belongs to them, why are they giving it to me? And Viserys, Viserys is just a gift from Magister Illyrio, he says. His brother was in a high mood tonight. The color will bring out the violet in your eyes, and you shall have gold as well and jewels of all sorts. Illyrio has promised. Tonight, you must look like a princess. A princess, Danny thought. She had forgotten what that was like. Perhaps she had never really known. Why does she give us so much, she asked. What does he want from us? Immediately, she's asking these questions that Viserys has never thought to ask. For him, everything that exists in this chapter, the clothes, the jewels, the food, everything is what he's owed. It's inherent to being Viserys Targaryen. This is his life. And Danny understands, no, the people giving us these things, they want something from us. Mm -hmm. This is not coming from nowhere. 
there is a give and take here, a give and take that my brother maybe doesn't understand. And that, again, is a radical idea she must gradually evolve to over the course of this book, the idea that, you know what, maybe I'm smarter than Viserys. Maybe I understand what's going on, and he maybe he doesn't. Maybe all the stuff I've been hearing in the streets is wrong, is, is I'm sorry, is right, and he is completely wrong. And that is something she has to develop and something we are supposed to develop as well, the understanding that the the object in this storyline, it seems, the women being presented as a prize to be won, the woman who Varys and Illyrio and Viserys and Drogue, when everyone thinks of as just a step to a goal, we will sell Daenerys so we can get the Dothraki, that maybe her decisions and her ideas are actually the center of this whole story. And you see that immediately because she is very clearly smarter than Viserys, very clearly interrogating why Illyrio is keeping them in their house, why he is arranging this meeting with Khal Drogo. And that works so well because we don't, we don't know these things either. Yeah. Viserys is assuming these things, but we also need to know who the hell Illyrio Mopatis is and where they are and who the Dothraki is. And Danny is our introduction by telling us, OK, here's what's going on and here's why I don't think my brother is right about these things. And that's such a great – opening voice to this part of the world that's such a great way as we've said in our intros a great way to introduce us to a world that is completely unfamiliar and indeed contradictory ideologically and logistically to the world we've known so far in this series that it's 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 so immediately hooking and intriguing when i read these first opening paragraphs and danny defying her brother defying illyrio thinking about these things carefully it's, it's, it's such a perfect way of orienting us in this part of the story, and it, it stands out as an example of something we will no doubt be discussing throughout, but how important the specific POV characters are and how different yes. this story could have been if different characters had been the POV. If this first book, the POVs had been Viserys, Robert, Rob, Littlefinger… Like, imagine how differently this story would have been framed if, unless the POVs had been Danny, Ned, Catelyn, Tyrion. This this chapter is first what lets you know. It first gets you the sense that it's really important which eyes you're seeing it through, and everything Danny suggests and thinks about really, really puts that forward. No, it's you're right. She is a really great point of view and her viewpoint has been focused by the world that she's existed in since since she was born she's not she didn't have Viserys Targaryen's brief time as a prince in the palace he was and for a very very brief time as heir to the throne as we find out in the world of ice and fire um but this is also really cool in that Martin has a very concrete idea of an arc for Daenerys. An arc in the sense that he doesn't want to thrust this wise-cracking, super smart girl in the midst as a as a sore that stands out like a sore thumb in this this chapter that would feel alien, that would feel alienating for the reader. Instead, he sets Danny up as a sympathetic point of view character, but also exhibiting traits that be, that comes significantly into the fore later on, her intelligence, her, her perceptiveness. These different things that George is introducing in this chapter help to provide the foundation for the rest of her Game of Thrones arc. And actually, 
in reality for the rest of her Song of Ice and Fire arc. Um, but it's, it's really good storytelling on Martin's part to build this arc up from here and that you get a, you, you have the, the base level and the foundation here with Danny being a powerless pawn that is being used by Viserys, that is being used by Illyrio, then, you know, frankly, being used by Caldrogo and the Dothraki for purposes that, you know, we'll, we'll be exploring in a bit more depth as we go on. But she's a pawn here, but she's a, she's a smart pawn, but she's also a smart pawn that exists in the universe and world that that she's in. She's she's not Arya Stark. I mean, as much as I love Arya, she's not a smartass. She's not talking back to Viserys. She is the victim of significant amounts of abuse throughout the chapter from Viserys Targaryen. And she is, but she at the same time is that she's developing these traits that are going to have, again, an impact as her arc progresses. Um, but I was, I was curious, the, um, we can, this is actually a, a fascinating topic uh, and we can talk about it in significant depth. Um, in fact, why don't, why, why don't we? Why not, good sir? So tell me a little bit about the, the bigger picture, the world building that Martin is doing here in this chapter and, and how he's using the structure of this chapter to focus our attention on the wider world beyond Westeros. Um, I'm actually being actually just came up with that on the fly. It's not even the notes, I don't think, but I figured it would be a good way to <laughs> to get kind of get Amen. you talking because I am I'm it's fascinating and interested as to what you think about the world building and how Martin is developing that through the structure. Well, something I think Martin does so well in this series is he integrates world building into character dynamics. He has these individual people who are contrasting with each other or comparing with each other for very good reasons they have these dynamics that they're fighting out very intimate very focused but in those dynamics he has these opportunities to expand on the backstory in ways that don't feel forced that feel very normal to the characters so immediately as soon as danny and viserys are having this argument about why viserys why illyrio has given her this dress what his intentions are what he wants for them that gives an opportunity for danny to internally expound upon the difference between her and her brother and as i've said the difference between her and her brother is her brother remembers westeros and she doesn't so she gets this whole sense perhaps the dragon did remember but danny could not she had never seen this land her brother said was theirs, this realm beyond the narrow sea. These places he talked of, Casterly Rock and the Eyrie, High Garden and the Vale of Erin, Dorne and the Isle of Faces, they were just words to her. Viserys had been a boy of eight when they fled King's Landing to escape the advancing armies of the Usurper, but Daenerys had been only a quickening in their mother's womb. Yet sometimes, <laughs> Danny would picture the way it had been. So often had her brother told her the stories. The midnight flight to Dragonstone, moonlight shimmering on the ship's black sails, her brother Rhaegar battling the usurper in the bloody waters of the Trident and dying for the woman he loved. <laughs> the sack of King's Landing by the ones of Viserys called the usurper's dogs, the Lord's Lannister and Stark. Princess Elia of Dorne pleading for mercy as Rhaegar's arrow was ripped from her breast and murdered before her eyes. And the polished skulls of the last dragon staring down sightlessly from the walls of the throne room while the Kingslayer opened the father's throat with a golden sword. 
What we're getting here is an entire counter narrative, man. Like it's 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 a story that's not only different from the story we got in the first three chapters, but a story that says, you know what? Everything you heard in those first three chapters, screw that. All of that was wrong. All of that was propaganda. All of that was nonsense. This is the real story. And that's how the Targaryens think, that everything we've heard about John Aaron and Ned Stark and his method of doing justice and who House Stark is, all like, like the Greyjoy Rebellion, that's why Theon is there, all of that means nothing. All of the last 15 years, as far as the Targaryens concerned, is not in canon. <laughs> this is what matters to them. This is the story. Yeah. The story is we got kicked out of what we had by the usurper's dogs. Lannister and Stark, as we will get into in later chapters, are the same to us. As far as we're concerned, we had a country, and then that country got taken away from us. And that is such a vital counter-narrative to what we saw in the first three chapters and everything that will develop from this. We mentioned in the, the very first episode that Stephen Atwell at Race for the Iron Throne is a huge inspiration for what we talk about. And he's got this great line about this chapter and about yep. everything Viserys says. What Martin is showing us here, even through Viserys' rose-tinted glasses – is that no civil war is ever over. No civil war is ever won. <laughs> That's what this chapter is. And it's, it's it's such an exemplary chapter in that regard. I've never seen it done better. That's a, that's a great point. I, I wish I I wish I had Mar I had Atwell's ability to synthesize all of the, the 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 thoughts that Martin is putting into a song Ice and Fire into that. But that's a that's a brilliant point. But you know Something about that, the way that you read Danny's description, I, I've got to ask you this. Did, like, it's it's all backstory, right? It's all yeah. backstory, yeah? It is, and that's what's amazing about it. Backstory is what hurts most fantasy, you know, brother? Like, that's yeah. what – like I talked about a couple episodes ago with the, the Lord Alexander books, the, the Chronicles of Prudane, <laughs> where it's like – Hearing about who everyone is and what they've done and why they're important, usually that's what kills you. Like the reason Lord of the Rings is so yeah. beloved is it because it handled the backstory and entire other story before it even <laughs> opens. So you, you mostly just had to read that. It gets into it a little bit in the opening of, of Fellowship of the Ring, the early parts of that series. But mostly that's fantasy's huge flaws. It requires so much backstory to mean anything. And the reason – George R. R. Martin's fantasy saga has had s such strong legs and has persisted so strongly is because he sets up the backstory in this really brilliant way where it compels you and allows you to see all sides of the story and allows you to critique all sides of the story. I mean, in this chapter, we are meant to critique Viserys, right? We're meant to look at his nostalgia mm -hmm. and his perspective as something that's based on factual inaccuracies and overall driven by this loss that's not reflective of what his father actually did and he himself is an asshole and we're meant to not be hugely sympathetic to that drive right but in the next chapter right. Edward one we get robert's perspective and we're meant to see oh robert is basing a lot of his ideas on bullshit and a lot of his ideas <laughs> on lies and he doesn't necessarily understand why the war was fought and he's focused on the past and we're, we're meant to realize that Nobody won this war. Like that's for me the ultimate point of Robert's Rebellion. Nobody won. Every like even if you didn't die, you lost somebody important to you. You didn't get what you wanted. Even the South One Ambitions Coalition, they didn't intend for this many people to die on their way to power. 
And then you have Robert and Ned and Viserys and Jamie and Barbary and John Connington and the Martell brothers, and everyone is sad now because the people they cared most about died during that war. And what does Robert say later in the book that he was never so alive when winning this throne and never so yeah. dead now that he's won it? Yes. That's Robert's Rebellion. As much as we accurately argued last week that Robert's Rebellion was a justified war, emotionally speaking, the point is that no, none of the people who won it are happy, and none of the people who lost it are happy. And nobody came out with this with a good – with a great life and that's part of the idea we're supposed to get from these opening chapters that the romantic heroic backstory in which Robert was muscled like a maiden's fantasy and <laughs> Rhaegar died for the woman he loved and Jamie like saved the city like all of these great tragic perfect fantasy romantic backstories and now we're zooming in 15 years later and all of them are screwed up for it nobody is yeah. happy like the whole Martin's great critique of Lord of the Rings, right, is that Aragorn won and then everything was okay for like 500 years because he was in charge. And Martin's pointing out, no, that doesn't work. If you zoom in even 15, 20 years later, I guarantee you everything is still screwed up because yep. all of those people are horrified by what they went through in the war. And just because they won doesn't mean they've gotten over what they've lost and the friendships have decayed and the romantic relationships have died and people have corrupted it and Littlefinger came in and he's trying to say that, look, it's not – so much of fantasy is about, OK, let's deal with the problems and then everything will be OK. We'll do – you know, everything will be fine and we'll create this perfect legacy. And part of what Martin is trying to say in this series is that doesn't work. That immediately no. after killing the mad, the bad king, and getting your perfect romantic, you know, sexy hero in charge, it's still going to go down. It's still going to decay. It's still going to have problems. You're still going to have people trying to take over the government for no good reason, and you still have to worry about that. It's not enough to say that Aragorn ruled wisely and well for 500 years, because Robert no, sure yeah. thought he was going to do that too, and he didn't. And this chapter right. is part of realizing that and part of realizing how that happens. And that's what sets this apart from other fantasy series and other parts of the genre is not just that, like, it's not just that wanting the good guy to win is bad and you're an idiot for wanting that. Like, that's bad deconstruction and bad kind of grimdark. It's that being a good king is really, really, really difficult. And the fact yeah. that we didn't have good rulership before Aragorn in Middle-earth is not just because we didn't have good guys in charge. It's because the job of being in charge is almost impossible to do well. Yes. And that's something I think we see strongly in this series when even people like Rob or Stannis with the best of intentions who really just want to do the right thing. And the way they end up ruling ends up screwing over a lot of people and ultimately making things harder. And, like, they have to give up that which they love most to do the right thing. And, like, for me, that's what George Wynne is saying. This is what being a leader is like. And it doesn't yeah. mean you shouldn't try to be a leader or should try to do the right thing. Danny spends her entire story doing the right thing, trying to do the right thing. But her story starts with her looking at her brother and realizing, oh, my God, you're just crazy. Oh, yeah. Your story is meaningless and your dreams are horrible and you, you have no way of bringing us home. And I've been spending my entire life believing you and you're full of nonsense. And that's just – yeah, there's a certain romanticism and hard-earned realism to that that I love that, as I said in the prologue, for me, that's better than just grimdark, just saying that everything is meaningless and worthless. 
And it's also better than purely like, again, he ruled wisely and well, Sansa was right, everything is fine. Like, both of those are wrong. Both of those have shortcomings. Both of those are very easy on the reader in some respects. And I think what Martin is trying to do is try to find a middle road where you live up to the ideals and values of the good side of fantasy, quote-unquote, but you demand that those values mean something. You demand that they be earned and go up against hardships. And Danny is so vital to that, that we start with this character who is gradually seeing through her brother's story, has to assimilate into these other people, but by the end of the book is declaring to her new people, look, I'm going to look after you. I got no way of doing that. She says this before she births dragons, before she has superpowers. She says to the remaining people of Dothraki, I'm going to look after you and I'm going to treat you all the same. Women and children and slaves, you are all going to be the same within my group. And that is the conclusion I have come to from my 14 years on this earth. And I'm yes. the Targaryen heir and that doesn't – Viserys wouldn't agree with me. And Drogo wouldn't agree with me. But that is the conclusion I have come to. And yeah. that, that's, that's just – he, he builds that so powerfully over the course of this arc. And we've we've talked a bunch, of course, already about where Danny's character is going and what we love about the series, even more than what's in this chapter. But that's because it's all here, even in the opening paragraphs. You can see where Danny is going. And that's it's 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 he Martin takes off from the genre here. The genre is a launching pad, if you will. This is part of where his particular rocket takes off is this chapter. No, you're you're absolutely right. It's it's a great launching point for Daenerys and for her story. And yeah, I, I also want to point out that once again, I caught you monologuing there, so I'm like super happy that my little little line of, of dialogue I threw in there is good enough to get Emmett monologuing for a extended period of time. And that man, that was good. That hit me right in the heart. So solid monologuing, my friend. Oh shucks, brother. I mean, I like I like hearing myself talk, so that that is unfortunately what y'all will be dealing with. And as always, I love hearing you talk, so even better. Oh, um, my friend. <laughs> so, um, and and I won't try and repeat everything you said, but it does kind of lead me into the the, the thing that I like uh, about this chapter. And there's many, many, many things. And my note here is my like is just about everything from this chapter. But the, the ones I will single out are I love the quote Danny Smart versus the quote Viserys delusional dynamic that Martin plays with in this chapter of Viserys is has some very uh, head in the clouds ideas about who he is and where their story is taking them. Um, you kind of get the impression that Viserys has this idea of being a traditional fantasy hero of his own story. He's the hero of his own story that he's going to take back Westeros and restore things back to their glorious past as the Targaryens ruled before. But that's actually not the case because Viserys is maybe not quite as mad as his father, but if he's not, he's fairly close to his father, unfortunately, uh, as, as we're going to discover throughout this, this, this book. Um, another thing that I love about this chapter, and this is going to be kind of painting with a broad brush and I apologize. That is a little bit of a pun, but it is world building through color. Uh, I loved all of the descriptions that Martin uses, the dyed beards, the flaming garments that Illyrio is wearing. And then this is this is one of my favorite lines from the chapter. And, I, and this 
probably wouldn't come into favorite quotes um, Google search, but I just love how descriptive this these two sentences are, or three sentences rather. It's, quote, Inside the manse, the air was heavy with the scent of spices, pinch fire, and sweet lemon and cinnamon. They were escorted across the entry hall where a mosaic of colored glass depicted the doom of Valyria. Oil burned in black iron lanterns all across the walls, unquote. And I just, uh, and I think that's just a super awesome, sweet way of describing things. And man, I, you know, as much as I joke about being Martin's equal in terms of being a fiction writer, I'm really freaking not, man. Like I read these paragraphs and I'm like, dude, mm. that guy is like eons ahead of me in terms of his, his ability to describe things and how poetic the language is. And I think it's just a great testament to Martin's abilities as a writer. Then, and again, it's, it's also his abilities as a writer that have been honed over decades, even when he's writing a game of Thrones, he's 30 years into his writing career. And that really comes across in, in these little areas like that. Uh, and then the final thing that I really like was um, the, the, our quick introduction to Dothraki culture, which is going to be explored as the central thematic element of Danny's second chapter. We get ideas that are brought across of Khal Drogo as being never defeated in battle, as evidenced by his long braid. I think that's a really cool idea that Martin introduces into the story as world building. Yeah, so I really enjoyed our little introduction to uh, Dothraki culture. So I'm curious, besides what you've already said about what you've liked in this chapter, were there other particular things that you found that you really enjoyed in this chapter, other than, you know, the uh, the nice three hour long monologue you gave us about all the glories of Martin's writing and about how Martin wraps Danny's story up in these broad thematic overtones that are brought to the fore in this first chapter. So what are the specifics from this chapter that you liked or loved? Well, it's a character we've mentioned briefly in passing, but is uh, vital <laughs> to the series in a way that exceeds his overall screen time is Illyrio Mopatis. Purely in terms of his impact on what happens overall, it, it hugely exceeds his overall appearance actually on the page. In the same way that Lysa is a hugely important character in terms of what actually happens in the War of Five Kings, but she only appears in five or six chapters. Same deal with Illyrio. <laughs> he only appears here in a couple opening chapters in the Game of Thrones and in Tyrion's first couple chapters in Dance so far. But in his partnership with... Uh, Varus and his overall impact in the Targaryen storyline, he is hugely important. And something I love about this chapter is that Dany sees through him immediately. Like, again, yes. her first lines of dialogue are, is it really mine? Why does he give us so much? What does he want from us? For nigh on half a year, they had lived in the Magister's house, eating his food, pampered by his servants. Danny was 13, old enough to know that such gifts seldom came without their price, here in the free city of Pentos. Like, immediately, I love about this chapter that she is, she is already interrogating Illyrio, like, why are we here? Why do we have these <laughs> nice things? Like, yeah, we're the Targaryens, we used to be in charge, but we're not anymore, let's be honest with ourselves. <laughs> so why is Illyrio giving us things? And Illyrio says, and Varys, Viserys says, the Magister knows that I will not forget my friends when I come into the throne. But Danny thinks to herself, Magister Illyrio is a de dealer in spices, gemstones, dragon bone, and other less savory things. He had mm -hmm. friends in all of the nine free cities, it was said, and even beyond, in Vice Dothrak, in the fabled lands beside the Jade Sea. 
It was also said that he never had a friend he wouldn't cheerfully sell for the right price. Danny listened to the talk on the streets, and she heard these things, but she knew better than to question her brother when he wove his webs of dream. Like, I love that. Danny cool. immediately is the one who is plugged into what's going on on the realities of Pentos. She understands what Illyrio is, who is he's about. Immediately we're being told, okay, don't just believe Illyrio when he says he wants Viserys to sit the Iron Throne. He clearly has another thing going on, and we should be on the lookout for that. And Danny is the character who cues us into that. She's the one who... When she when she's brought to Drogo's mats, Viserys is just like, oh, to hell with all these people. They're not the king. I should have a sword. I should be introduced first. And Danny is the one wondering, okay, I'm the only woman here. What does that mean? No one has weapons. What does that mean? The Dothraki are inviting all these different people to Cal Drogo's mats. What does that mean? I love that we have this POV character who is in this part of the world we don't understand who is trying to cue us in and trying to interrogate what's going on behind the scenes and it's in a way that feels rooted in her backstory she doesn't feel like a, a mary sue to use an overrated internet phrase she doesn't <laughs> feel like she's coming out of nowhere and is just being curious because the author needs her to she comes out as someone who is like as you said in contrast to viserys someone who does not feel at home in westeros and so is much more interested in the world she's being brought within and she has to as Viserys keeps instilling her she has to be good at this party and stand out like Daenerys the Targaryen heir but for her that's a meaningless phrase she doesn't know about Westeros or the Iron Throne for her home is this house with the red door and bravos and what's so powerful about that is that it's objectively not important like it doesn't right. really matter where Danny stayed in bravos that matters only to her like, that was a transitional moment for House Targaryen, where they had to stay in for exile for a few years before moving on. In the history of House Targaryen, it does not matter where they stayed in Braavos. It only matters to Danny because that was her childhood. That's where she was. That's what means something to her. And for, so when Viserys says that the important parts of their lives are Dragonstone and King's Landing, that doesn't register with her because that doesn't mean anything to her. For her, Dragonstone and King's Landing matter about as much as the fights of the lords matter to the small folk in the broken man speech. Like this <laughs> is – from Danny's perspective – the war about Robert's Rebellion is absolutely meaningless because it all happened before she was born, before her concerns, before anything that she cares about. So while Viserys is able to see Illyria was just someone who's helping me on my way back to my natural position as king, Danny is able to look at him and think, okay, so what is his goal? What is he actually here for? What is he trying to accomplish via us? And I think that that's, that's such a interesting way to start this story out is as a way of immediately challenging the narrative we're given within this chapter about Targaryen restoration, trying to find the way back and being shown in the background, okay, but to our POV, this isn't meaningful. In the same way that, yeah, Robert won the throne, but as far as he's concerned, it doesn't mean anything because he didn't get Lyanna. So all these characters are just grasping for what's already past them and what's already gone. And Robert Rebellion is this beautiful history that they everyone wants to possess, but no one can. It's already gone. And Danny is someone who can see through that in terms of Viserys. Like the way again, like you said, the way she describes Keldrogo's mans, the way she describes Pentos, like this is this is her home. This is what yeah. she understands. This is what she's trying to perceive. And at the end of this chapter, you know, 
it's this brutal scene where she she just wants she tells Viserys she wants to go home. They're in Caldrogo's mans. Viserys is is preparing to, you know, solidify the marriage contract between her and Caldrogo. Caldrogo can provide Viserys with the people to take retake the Seven Kingdoms. And Vis- Danny says, "No, I want to go home." And Viserys says, "We can't go home unless with this army." What do you think? What do you think it means to go home? And Danny realizes, "Oh, for you." That means Westeros. That means hmm. the Red Keep. That means Dragonstone. Yeah. All I was talking about was Illyrio's Mance, because that's all <laughs> that means for me. Home is just wherever we're sleeping, because Westeros doesn't mean anything to me. And she realizes for the first time, there's no way that both Viserys and me can be happy, because for hmm. Viserys, being happy means going to this home that I don't recognize, and for me. I have to recreate this home. And she gradually realizes over the course of her coming chapters that she can make a home for herself among the Dothraki and Viserys can't. So eventually she's going to be forced to choose. And that dynamic is set up so strongly in this chapter as she details the dreams uh, Viserys has told her. Somewhere beyond the sunset, across the narrow sea, lay a land of green hills and flowered plains and great rushing rivers, whose towers of dark stone rose amidst magnificent blue-gray mountains, and arbor knights rode to battle beneath banners of their lords. Like, the, Westeros is a fantasy for her. It's a, <laughs> it's a place of stories and songs, as every bit as much as it is to us. And that's for me. That's the point of this chapter. That it's it's on it's an unreal thing for Danny, and that Viserys doesn't realize it, but she has to recreate her own vision of home and her own idea amidst the ashes of his. And his 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 dream of being king is as dead as Le- as Robert's dream of marrying Lyanna, or Barbie's dream of marrying Brandon, or Duran's dream of his of his sister, or John Connington's dream of Rhaegar, or Jamie's dream of being a Kingsguard. It's all gone. The, the era of Robert's Rebellion is all these dreams that are dead, and the most important characters are characters like Danny or John or, uh, you know, Bran or Yassan. So all the characters who are young enough that can hopefully try to see past this stuff and try to recreate something better. And for me, this is this is where that fight – this is really where that fight begins is the Danny versus Viserys struggle in the opening paragraphs of this chapter where Viserys is talking about like, yeah, I'm going to go back and everyone's going to support me and the small folk are showing my banners and I'm going to get, he thinks the Greyjoys are going to support him for no apparent reason. And like, yeah, the Tyrells and the Redwines, like, yeah, they don't like Robert, but they're not going to like you anymore, dude. Like they're going to end up with Renly at, at, at the end of the day. Like Viserys is presented as this delusional like, immediately his fingers are shaking, his eyes are nervous, Illyrio is mocking him, and only Danny understands. We're meant to understand that this guy's this guy's dreams are, are folly and never going to happen. So let's take a look at his sister and what she's thinking about and what her history is. And it's almost like, like we said the other week about how Martin made Catelyn a POV so King Arthur's POV, King Arthur's mom's POV could get a voice, which she so often doesn't in these series. Danny is Martin's way of saying, okay, look at this exile prince of Viserys Targaryen. So he's a shallow asshole and nothing he wants is going to happen. So maybe the more interesting thing to think about is the sister he's using as a pawn. And that's such a great you – can, you can see in this chapter the camera moving. You can see it looking at Viserys and going, nope, not good enough, not interesting, going to die. 
folly and just shifting to Danny. And that that's one of the ideas you can see in this first book of Martin trying to drag the whole genre in a different direction. Yeah, he he does push the 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 narrative in unexpected ways, and this is something that is explored as we saw in Cat Bran and in the the prologue chapters, and is something that we're going to see Martin zagging when we think he's going to zig um, throughout the narrative. But at the same time, he does so in ways that are not like, aha, here's the rabbit out of the hat, but rather in ways that are conducive to the characters and work through the characterization that Martin has imparted into these guys and gals. Uh, So... Yeah, that's great stuff, as always. It's, uh, again, caught you monologuing. Don't care. I could, again, listen to you monologue all day and night. And unfortunately, for our listeners, you're going to have to listen to me go, mm, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, awesome, uh-huh, throughout Emmett's monologue. And that's just going to be the way it's going to be going forward. Um <laughs> So, um, so this, this chapter, again, I, I, I talked about how I can gush all over it and, um, I, I can, and I have, but I, uh, I, I do have a, a, I don't know if you want to call it a minor dislike this one. This is, this is, this is in between, I would say a minor and a major dislike, but it's something that George fixes down the road. So bear with me. Um, so my dislike of this chapter is, uh, what Emmett has termed, um, as termed early installment weirdness and that the Illyria Vara's conspiracy has some oddity to it that gets an eyebrow raise for me. Um, and, and just, just to give you guys a very, very quick background about what I'm talking about. So the Illyria Vara's conspiracy, what is it? And what do we learn about it here? So the TLDR definition of the conspiracy is, and this is something that I wrote, so feel free to disagree with it. I don't care. It's Illyrian Vares are working a years-in-the-making plot in both Westeros and Essos to seat Young Griff, also known as Aegon, also definitely a Blackfire, onto the Iron Throne. Um, this is a conspiracy that is, again, years in the making, and it is um, a bit weird because... At this juncture, when George was writing this part of the story, he had not envisioned the Blackfires in the story. What I mean by that is that George, at this juncture in writing A Song of Ice and Fire, had not come up with the idea of the bastard claimants to the Iron Throne, that is the Blackfires, the heirs, the bastard heirs of Aegon IV. Um, So he hadn't really come up with that. In fact, he didn't really come up with it until around the 1999 timeframe. So we're thinking we're looking at three years after A Game of Thrones was published. And this becomes really evident in this, in Martin's novella, the, The Hedge Knight, where you have many of the major players in the first Blackfire Rebellion all being at the tourney at Ashford. But none of them think to mention something about, oh, there I was at the Redgrass Field, the Hammer and the Anvil, and you have these major players on the Red Dragon side there, and they don't talk about the Blackfire Rebellion. All well and good, Martin does this thing where he develops ideas over time, and ideas hit him, and he ends up integrating them into the story. So one of those ideas was this idea of the sword Blackfire, and how about Aegon IV granting that sword to... Daemon, Blackfire, his bastard son, instead of his natural-born son, Darren II, 
And we can talk a little bit more about that, about the conspiracy in greater length in, in later episodes or in special episodes. But suffice to say, George hadn't come up with that. So what's kind of going on here is, is interesting in that we have a world where the Black Fires don't exist on the meta side, but they are eventually retconned back into the story later on. And it's kind of funny because George kind of has this idea in John Connington's uh, first chapter in A Dance with Dragons, where he has one of the Golden Company cell swords kind of read the uh, the reader in on what's going on behind the scenes. And it's uh, Tristan Rivers. And the quote is, um, he's... Harry Strickland is talking about, you know, we need to stick with the plan, guys. We can't we can't deviate from the plan. And Tristan Rivers says, which plan? The fat man's plan, the one that changes every time the moon turns? First, Viserys Targaryen was to join us with 50,000 Dothraki screamers at his back. Then the beggar king was dead, and it was to be his sister, a pliable young child queen who was on her way to Pentos with three new hatched dragons. Instead, the girl turns up on Slaver's Bay and leaves a string of burning cities in her wake, and the fat man decides we should meet her by Volantis. Now that plan is in ruins as well. And I just kind of as a meta note, I wonder if that's Martin's kind of mischievously winking at himself and saying, which plan? The plan that I had written with the idea that Daenerys was supposed to be that Illyrio had this different conspiracy in mind before he came up with another plan, which was the black fires. Um, but, and I, and I'm rambling a little bit, but the, my, my major dislike of, of this chapter is that early installment weirdness where the black fires don't exist in Martin's head as he's writing this chapter. So Martin has to go back later on and kind of course correct a bit and introduce the black fires back into the story um, but it does kind of open up all sorts of possibilities, which I won't go into at this juncture. Um, although you can read some of the stuff I've written about that. I will link them in the show notes about what Martin's original plan was for um, Illyrio and Varys and Daenerys and Viserys. But but yeah, so um, it's this does give us, though, a, a picture of the major conspiracy that Illyrio and Varys have been working on for years and years and years. Uh, so I'm curious. Is this plan actually going to work? That's an excellent question, good buddy. Like you say, it's probably gone through several permutations in both Martin's mind and with Varys and Delirio. I think there were interesting moments in Feast and Dance in which he calls out what the plan would have been if he hadn't had to ditch the five-year gap, like Littlefinger saying that he was hoping for a few more quiet years from Cersei, or Euron saying that if only the Ironborn had been willing, he'd have gone to Slaver's Bay. I think these are hints at where Martin was trying to take the series before he realized the five-year gap wasn't working. And this is probably another example of the same. Uh, Illyrio and Varys' plan has had to change multiple times. But I mean... I think any plan that involves Viserys actually taking the throne is so self-evidently bad that, especially from what Jorah Mormont says in later Daenerys chapters, that that was probably never the plan. They were always hoping for Viserys to either die with the Dothraki, or it seems like Illyrio wasn't planning for him to go with the Dothraki, so maybe they were planning on killing him off in Pentos once they'd assured that marriage contract between Danny and Drogo. But, I mean, you see Varys and Illyrio saying later in the book they were hoping for civil war to break out in Westeros to give them an opportunity. They just didn't have, didn't plan for it to happen so quickly. So clearly at some point Varys was probably planning on revealing the parentage of Joffrey and his siblings, maybe via someone like Tyric Lannister, Tyric Lannister who he kidnaps later on. Uh, and then the events involving Ned and Littlefinger in the first book just accelerated his plan. I mean... <laughs> my instinct is my instinct is to say that it never would have worked simply because Egan himself 
is just the image. I mean, this is something we'd obviously get to into much later with the Dance with Dragons, which oh, yeah. we get to it, but knowing that Varus's plan all along, at least in his brain, if not George R. R. Martin's, was to restore this perfect trained you know established monarch who's suffered and been through small folk stuff and has been educated across the board ultimately i think we're supposed to realize that that ultimately doesn't resolve the problems that face westeros because egan has known all along that he was going to be on the throne so it doesn't really feel real to him when we see him in the sorrows and a dance with dragons we see him facing down the stone men and he just freezes up because it's the yeah. first real thing he's ever had to encounter and everything every struggle before that has been fake or academic or he's you know he's been able to survive the outcome and this is the first real challenge he's faced and he freezes up so i think we're ultimately supposed to realize that Varus's plans has has huge shortcomings and blind spots in it but and, but that's analogous and fits in certain ways to what we see in this chapter. Even before we know about Egan's survival, even before we know that Varus and Illyrio are partners, we see this sense of the plan, in air quotes, <laughs> failing. Of Viserys not being able to handle the Dothraki, handle his own part in the plan. We see that Danny has ideas and interests beyond simply the shallow pawn part she was supposed to play in that plan so like even before i would say even before we know what the Varus illyrio conspiracy really is we're already seeing the reasons it's not going to work we're already seeing the groundwork laid for the characters involved to either outlive or undercut the overall plan that the cheesemonger and the spider have developed between them and that, you know, we, we don't know by the end of A Game of Thrones how Dany has disrupted the Varus and Delirio plan. We don't really get a sense of that until Dance. But she does disrupt it. Like, it was never the plan for Daenerys Targaryen to shuck Viserys, so to speak, shuck Caldrogos, shuck his entire Kalasar, and take over in her, in her own right. That has completely screwed with Varus's plans. And... For me, that that's a great way to undercut them from the very beginning. Even before we know what they are, they're already going wrong. And, you know, Danny, Danny has a sense in this chapter that Illyrio isn't telling Viserys the truth, that he has other plans. We don't, we don't really know what they are yet, but I think it's vital that from the get-go, Viserys has fallen for Illyrio's scheme and that Danny has not. And I think that's an, a strong, yeah. immediate contrast between the two characters you see in this chapter. So I think it's – I was – think of the uh that funny line it makes me laugh every time i read it from a storm of swords where uh danny and jorah are talking in the uh bowels of the the ship that uh that grolio is is captaining and um danny tells jorah that you know i i grolio told me that that illyrio cried when he heard about Viserys dying and jorah's like did he cry because he was actually sad or did he cry because like he had just thrown all of these plans that illyrio had into into ash. And, um, you, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I, I, I kind of vacillate a little bit on what the, what the plan actually was. Um, cons- now that we have the black fires in mind, what, what the plan is and, and trying to think about the different ways that, um, that George's, that, that Illyria was, was plotting here. And I think one of the, the, the major theories out there is that, um, Viserys and the Dothraki were supposed to invade ahead of the golden company and take Westeros or be involved in this massive war. And then Aegon and the Golden Company would show up and cleanse the land of, of all the usurpers to include Viserys. And, you know, I, I like that theory. And I'm, I'm some, it's something that I've actually written in defense of in the past, but it's something that I, I, I still kind of struggle with, especially given 
uh, that Tristan Rivers line about the different plans and what the original plan was. Um, and I, I look forward to George kind of revealing more and more of the backstory within the story, which I think is a really cool motif that, that George plays with is what's actually going on in earlier books that is, re- that is revealed in later books. And I think that's something that I enjoy reading about and, uh, we'll see what George has in mind for, for the wins of winter. Um, but moving beyond the black fires, there's a couple other cool things, which I'll just mention briefly before we get onto everyone's favorite segment. And you know what that segment is. Um, there's a interesting connection in that Illyrio's favorite slave, the 16-year-old girl that talks Danny's ear off. I was curious if that is the same girl that Illyrio later has this lovely, and actually not lovely at all, but awful, terrible, horrific thing to say. Uh, when T- when Illyrio is talking with Tyrion, and he says, quote, Daenerys was half a child when she came to me, yet fairer even than my second wife. So lovely, I was tempted to claim her for myself. Such a fearful, furtive thing, however. I knew I should get no joy from coupling with her. Instead, I summoned a bedwarmer and fucked her vigorously until the madness passed. Unquote. Um, <laughs> I mean, Illyrio, <laughs> again, is, is an asshole and a piece of shit, but um, you do kind of... Yeah, he's just... A, he's, he's a terrible person, but it's a little bit funny, I, I guess, in, in a way. Um, so I was curious if that was the same person that uh, was the that was talking Danny's ear off and was playing at being her friend, uh, was the same person that, uh, Illyrio ended up being with, um, the night before, um, Daenerys and Khal Drogo wed. I think that's entirely plausible. And yeah, I just wanted to say, even before we get into the house with the red door stuff that I think it's important to recognize that this chapter really presents us with our first human monstrosity that we see in the series. I mean, we've seen in other cut down Raymore Royce while laughing. We've seen Raymore Royce being himself an asshole to Will and Garrett. But with Viserys Targaryen in this chapter, we really first start getting into Martin's overall case against nobility and power and masculinity and humanity in general this is this is where we really first start seeing how he thinks about evil in terms of human characters because we've discussed Viserys Targaryen so far in this episode as being someone who's pathetic and petty and delusional and dreaming of getting his home back and all of those things are true but all of that has to exist within the context of what he does in order to fulfill all of that in order to make all of that better and what he does is he grabs his young teenage sister's nipples and twists them and stares in her face and says, I would let his whole Kalasar fuck you, sweet sister, all 40,000 men and their horses too. That's what he is. Like, obviously he has these sympathetic notes in his backstory and he's lost a lot and he has a lot of trauma and like he's lost his mother and her crown, but there are people that have lost that much or even more in their lives that don't end up saying things like that to people who are depending upon them. And for me, ultimately, this is... It matters that the first real human evil we see in this series is is from someone who is in a position of power telling the person who depends on them, you cannot depend on me. I am not going to protect you. I am not going to take care of you. I am not going to fulfill my vows. I am not going to de- protect the weak and the innocent and women and children, all the knight's vows, all that good knight's vows stuff. I'm not going to do any of those things. What I am going to do is sell you. That's what you are to me. 
Yep. And that's for all the great world building and character work and all the great dizzying, immersive stuff that happens in this chapter. You know, emotionally speaking, that's what I come back to with this chapter is, is, is Danny realizing, oh, my older brother isn't going to protect me. The person who's been feeding me and taking care of me my whole life, all I ever meant to him was a vagina to sell. That's what I am to him. It's horrifying. horrifying. It's dehumanizing and, and angering, and it's it's meant to make us angry. We're not mo- we're not meant to look at it and say that's just the way of the times, you know, medieval feudal medievalism with women captured. Like no, we're supposed to realize no. This is being ri- written in a modern time for a modern perspective from Danny's POV, not for Saros's, for a reason, and that is so we can realize oh, this is this is a horrifying way to treat women and to treat marriage and to treat sex and to treat human physicality in general. And we're supposed to contrast that with the wonderful dream Viserys has of what life will be like when, when the Targaryen regime is restored. Well, not for Danny. In the same way that Robert's Rebellion wasn't a dream come true for Cersei, what Viserys is talking about is not a dream come true for Danny. And we're supposed to recognize that immediately and filter everything Viserys does and says through that, that whatever he's talking about, whatever it means to him, he is willing to destroy his sister, the person he is supposed to protect, in order to get that done. Yeah. And for me, that that's, that's a context that hovers outside everything he does and everything he says. But, morality aside, off to the more interesting logistics. When we talk about theories and backstory and all that good stuff regarding this chapter, there there is a... There is something that comes to mind, and that is the house with the red door. So, Jeff, oh, wanna, oh, wanna you want to kick us off into that? Oh, oh, you mean the house with the red door that is in Dorne or Volantis Ugh. or Old Town? Mm-hmm. That that house with the red door? I've I've Why heard would you do of this that house me, with the red door. It's 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 a it's a real theory. These are real theories. It's, it's so important, Jeff. The House of the Red Door, as everyone knows, was not actually in Bravos. Mind blown. Yeah, this is one of those things that's just the product of like we've been waiting too long for a new book. And we've been waiting too long for like answers to our questions. So we just make up theories where there isn't supposed to be one. It's not that the house with the red door is a meaningless thing in terms of Danny's character, and I'll kick that over to you in a second, good sir. <laughs> but just the the logistical theories about like, oh, Bravos doesn't have trees in it. This must be a th- like a hint that Danny was secretly raised in Dorne. Well, okay, first of all, we, we establish in Sam's one Bravos chapter in the Feast of Crows that the wealthy of Bravos do have trees in their courtyards. Almost as if Martin was doing his best to kill this theory in the crib. But even beyond that, like it wouldn't it wouldn't mean anything if it was revealed that Danny was raised in Dorne and that Duran had been protecting her. Like that wouldn't change anyone's motive. It wouldn't change anyone's backstory. It wouldn't change anyone's future actions. It's a twist without significance. And you know, one of the things I like about Martin's story as a whole is that he doesn't pull that kind of stuff. His his story twists tend to be meaningful and built in, and there is evidence if you look for it. But this is something that stands out strongly as either, well, really, it could be both of these things, as either a mistake in terms of Martin's world building, that he didn't 
think about Bravos now related to trees until later, and again covered it up with that mention in the Feast for Crows. Mm-hmm. And that's something, or that's something, and or that's something that's supposed to be part of Danny's backstory and how she relates to this idea of home and getting there. But it that's all it is. It's either a mistake in the world building and or part of the overall thematic building of the character. To look for this in terms of massive story clues for me is a definitive product of us having to wait too long for a new book. What do you think, good sir? Yeah, so um, again, I have put on yet another Mummer show for our loyal listeners. Um, I, I, I believe... I don't know why I have to say I believe the House with the Red Door is in in Bravos, and it, it's really um, you, you know, you talk about you you alluded to this, and, and I'm going to expand on it. You alluded to this being a mistake in world building, and what's interesting is that in Martin's original novella called, I believe it's called Blood of the Dragon. So Martin, before the publication of A Game of Thrones, published um, all of Danny's A Game of Thrones chapters in a a science fiction publication and I'm, and I'm blanking on the, on the name of it, of, of which one particularly, but the, the title of the novella was called blood of the dragon, which has all 10 of Danny's game of Thrones chapters in it, in which were the house of red doors located in Tyrosh, which is in the South, which has lemon trees and blah, 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 blah. All that aside, Martin decides that Bravos is the better location for, um, uh, for the house of the red door. And, and I do wonder whether Martin was hinting at visiting that location in the future. Um, in which we do see in Arya and Samwell's chapters in Feast for Crows in A Dance with Dragons. And he wanted us to kind of keep that in mind, that this is a important place. You'll be seeing this later on. But there is a... Uh, Martin ends up changing his mind, seemingly, between Tyrosh and Bravos. And, uh, you know, this is something... This is a great little um, little, little theory within the theory. Um, y- y- there is a the idea that the House of the Red Door is in Dorne. And I... I, I disagree with the theory, but I think there is maybe a seed. Yeah, you get this. You get me, right? There is a seed there that Martin might be planning and that there might be a little bit more to the story in so much that we learn in later in Danny's uh, arc, all the way towards the end of our arc in A Dance with Dragons, actually, that a pact was signed between uh, Oberyn Martell and Sir Willem Derry with the Sea Lord of Bravos as the um, as the uh, signatory witness of the pact, um, all well and cool, but I wonder maybe if um, Oberyn Martell perhaps brought a sapling from Dorne, well, lemon tree, call it if you will, to Bravos and gave it to the Sea Lord as a gift, which is something that is a uh, customary, right? You know, you have the idea of guest gifts in A Song of Ice and Fire in Westeros, in that guests can provide, don't always have to, but can provide gifts to the people that they're, that are hosting them. And so I, I kind of wonder if that's kind of an, an idea that, that Martin might explore later on, that Oberyn brought the sapling of a lemon tree to, um, to Bravos as a gift to the Sea Lord. And I think that also brings up a really interesting point as well about where exactly in Bravos the House of the Red Door is located. And I don't know what you, what you think about that, but my thought is that Danny was staying actually in none other than the Sea Lord's Palace in Bravos itself. And to help bolster this, there's a really cool image in the lands of Ice and Fire. And uh, it's a great little book of maps of the entire world that Martin published in 2012, in which um, the Bravos is, is detailed in exquisite detail. And one of the really interesting things about 
that map itself is that the Sea Lord's Palace is kind of separated out in this kind of little islet, island type thing. But in the island itself, there are all sorts of huge trees that are located in this, this island. So that's given rise to the idea that maybe Danny was, and Viserys were hosted at the Sea Lord's Palace, which is something that I would be um, interested in, in finding more about. But here's the interesting thing. All the theories and the sub-theories aside, I think what kind of gets lost is the symbolism and the meaning behind the, the House of the Red Door. And primarily, and most importantly, what it represents to Daenerys Targaryen. And here, I want to credit our, our friend Eliana, who is Glass Table Girl on Reddit, and I think is Arithmetic on Twitter if you want to follow her. She's excellent. She's a really good friend. And um, another Redditor named Jonestoney710, in which they talk about the symbolism behind the House of the Red Door. So what does it represent for Danny? And I think it represents several important factors in her childhood and things that are explored in this chapter in particular. First, it represents the childhood that Daenerys was deprived of. You have this, this line, all that Danny wanted was to be back at the big house with the red door, the lemon tree outside her window, the childhood she had never known. Like that is just rippling with pathos of this idea that Danny has been deprived of. The childhood that we see in the arcs of characters like Bran and Arya and Sansa, although, again, these are despoiled later on. But Danny has been fleeing in exile for the, entirety, for the entirety of her arc before we even get to A Game of Thrones. And that's very tragic. And that's something the House of the Red Door was the place of of of, of her home. And, that's, um, and, she, and she's lost that. She doesn't have that anymore. And that also speaks about her homelessness and her detachment from her roots and her hope someday that she can find a real home. It also speaks a little bit about her simplicity and ease of living. She talks about how she wishes she could take Dario in a dance with dragons to the house of the red door and they can live as man and wife and have a kind of a simple, easy life as opposed to the one that Danny has to live because Danny is, is one of the heroes of the story, one of the protagonists, the main protagonists of A Song of Ice and Fire. So that's not her path. But she has this other alternative path where she sees the house, with the House of the Red Door at the end of it. And, um, you know, finally and probably most importantly, the House of the Red Door represents happiness to her. In her final chapter on the Dothraki Sea in A Dance with Dragons, she's wandering around and she's thinking to herself about how she feels free and happy to be outside out of Marine. And she thinks, quote, not since those half-remembered days in Bravos, when she lived in the House of the Red Door, had she been as happy. And again, uh, it sends ch it sends chills down my spine to think about how tragic this is for Danny that she's never had the happiness that she's wanted. She's never had the simplicity. She's never had home. And that House of the Red Door represents all of those things to her. And so, though I firmly believe that the House of the Red Door is in Bravos. Not Dorne, not Old Town, not anywhere but Bravos. My primary fault with this theory is that I think it fails to see the forest for the trees. It fails to see what the what the House of the Red Door means for Daenerys Targaryen, and instead replaces it with a big conspiracy that Martin, as he's writing Game of Thrones, may not have even envisioned at this point in time, as as we've as we've talked about. So. Again, if you believe that the House of the Red Door is, other, is someplace other than, than Bravos, you know, that's fine. You know, you're, it's a free world, a free country at least, and you are welcome to believe that. But I'm sorry to say that your theory is wrong.
and you are ugly. Amen, brother. And may everyone take their bets and how often I said that in this episode. Shot, 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 <laughs> No, that's perfectly true. I, I can agree completely. Like, you know, whatever you think about logistically with House with the Red Door, the point isn't where it is. The point is what it means and what it signifies within Dan Eris's arc. And that's always been consistent. Like you say, it's been kept up even to A Dance with Dragons. That it's this past she can't recapture, this childhood she was never given. And Westeros for her and Marine for her and defending the, the children for her are all part of that same drive. She wants to understand who she is and where she's from and where she's supposed to be. And she she's not been given that. She has to recreate that for herself in a way that will satisfy her. And it's a way, you know, I feel so bad for her and everyone she interacts with that, the, that her drive for home is so intertwined with her drive for bloodlust and her drive for death and drive for destruction like there's this great line in her third game of thrones chapter which i'm sure we'll get into that's an amazing depthful chapter but when her and jorah and rhaegar are talking about home you know sir jorah laughed look around you then khaleesi but it was not the plains danny saw then it was king's landing and the great red keep that egan the conqueror had built it was dragonstone where she had been born in her mind's eye they burned with a thousand lights a fire blazing in every window. In her mind's eye, all the doors were red. Absolutely. Like For me, that's such a devastating image because it suggests that her homecoming, when she finally finds the red door, so to speak, it will be because all the doors are on fire. <laughs> because she's unleashed her dragons upon all the homes that she is encountering. And, and her... Her drive, her spirit, her love, her desperation has all taken the form of a destructive fire that is now blowing out every single door and replacing them with red. That's where this drive is going to take her. And, yeah. for, you know, that's that's such a perfect, well-done, devastating thing, and it's all rooted here. And, like, you know, as in this episode, as so much of our early episodes on this first book, a lot of what <laughs> we're going to be talking about is foreshadowing and groundwork. Because so much of what we're impressed by and what we love about these opening chapters is how well Martin sets the sets the tone for what's going to happen with these people later. And that's so strong with Daenerys. You can already see it in these first couple chapters. You can already see every step she's going to take along the way. And that's that's just that's just an incredible piece of writing. It really is. And, and kudos to, to Martin. And, and I feel like we don't thank him enough in the podcast for providing a wonderful set of books that we continuously think about and and analyze. But, you know, the major testament to George is his ability to ground all of the events that fall out throughout the books and in events that we haven't even seen published yet in these early chapters. So if the King's Landing example that... Emmett talked about is going to be something that I will have a lot of thoughts on come the third chapter in a Game of Thrones, or rather in Danny's third chapter in a Game of Thrones. But man, I think that we have crushed this chapter, if I do say so myself. <laughs> Amen, brother, to say it one more time. Shot, shot. <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for, for listening to us uh, talk about Danny's first chapter. I hope that you've enjoyed the podcast, and I hope that even if you didn't enjoy the podcast, you like Danny's first chapter. And if you don't like Danny's first chapter, you're also dumb and you're ugly and all those sorts of stuff. Because Danny's first chapter is awesome, and I hope that we've um, helped to enhance your appreciation of what Martin has laid down in this chapter. And 
you know, thanks again for listening to us all of these four episodes so far and for many to come. Absolutely. As we've been saying the last few episodes, tell us what you liked and what you didn't like and what you think we could do better. And we'll get back at you. A huge part of the podcast is trying to delve into more about what the community thinks and what the fandom has ideas about the early chapters of this first book that got us so into the series. So continue that by all means. Absolutely. And if you like what you heard, please rate us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to this podcast. We I've read all of the iTunes uh, reviews. I've gotten some interesting ones. Thank you for the person who says, who told me that I am not as evil as I, I don't sound as evil as I appear on Twitter, which is again, a lie that is spread by degenerates who do not like who I am, but that doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. To be, to be clear to all listeners, Jeff is far better a person than you think he is, and I am far worse a person than you think I am. So really, we're, we're, we're about in the middle in terms right. of how you think we actually conduct ourselves. We meet I right kindly assure you. So, again, we, we read all the, the reviews you guys leave us, and we really appreciate all the, the nice things you guys have said about us. So feel free to follow us on social media. Make sure you follow us on our official Twitter um, page which is at not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f and you know we, we mentioned at the very at the top of the the podcast about our email address we received some nice emails from folks our email address is not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f at gmail.com absolutely feel free to hit us up with any ideas you have about previous or oncoming chapters there and of course feel free to join us next week we're going to be getting into our first pov chapter from the book's main character that is eddard one game of thrones the first ned chapter and there's so much to get into in terms of his character robert's character uh that's our first kind of seed sown for r plus l equals j so i assure you we will be just as rambly and unsteppable next week (laughs) as we were this week my friends we will we will and so again thanks for listening and we will see you guys next week Happy trails, everybody. The Not A Podcast podcast is written and recorded by Port Quentin and Brendan B. Fish. The music you heard is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.